0: my way to church, and one of the girls in the college ministry I noticed her, her name was Kristen Coleman. Ironically, her father had been my pastor when I was in high school. I noticed that her car was on the side of the road and that she had had a flat tire and so I because I 'm so godly, I pulled up next to I pulled up next to her car. And I said, what happened? She said, I had a flat tire, and I need my tire changed. I said, man, I'm sorry about that. i got to get to church. And so I drove off. True story. Because I'm such a faithful churchman. Well, about 50 yards down the road, it took 50 yards. I wish I could have said 30 yards. But about 50 yards, I got slapped upside the head by the Holy Spirit. What are you doing, you Pharisee? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, I was embarrassed to tell Heather this story when it happened because I thought she would divorce me. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I did a U-turn, and I actually went back, and I changed her tire. Um, <laughs> you see, faith without works is dead, even if it's a faith that directs me to be on time at a church service. Faith without works is dead. That's what James is getting at in this book. He is concerned with this notion that you can have an intellectual, you know, agreement about certain things about God, and yet it not have a transforming effect on your life. And that is what he's taking on. He believes these people are Christians. He calls them brothers throughout. He even says in chapter 2, verse 1, talking about our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and yet he also wants to make it clear that saving faith works. So that's what he's getting at in this text. And verse 14 kind of serves as a uh, you could say, a transition verse between what he just said in 1 to 13 where he's talking about the fact that if we've been born of the Father, James 118, we will begin to take on the attributes of the father. It's one of the evidences that we have been born of him, like father, like child. We begin to look like our father. And he says, the father shows no partiality. Uh, The father, whether the person is wealthy or the person is poor, the person is popular, the person is not well known, the father shows no partiality. And if we are actually taking on the attributes of our father, that will demonstrate it. In our, in our lives. And now he says in verse 14. What good is it my brothers. If someone says he has faith. But does not have works. Can that faith save him? Now that is a very important question. Now the word faith here. Uh, it's a noun. And it's found 16 times in James. But what's interesting is that word is found 11 times in this passage. So from verses 14 to 26, the word faith is found 11 of the 16 times. Uh, The word works, uh, where he says if someone has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? That word works is found 15 times in James 12 times in this passage. So it's very clear what the main point of this passage is. He's not saying we say we're saved by works. He is saying we're saved by grace through faith that works. That's what saving faith is. And so it's important here to notice an assumption. Unless the readers, the original audience, are used to saying, Salvation is by faith. There's no point in what James is saying. So it's obvious, or at least it appears obvious, that the readers knew that slogan. We are saved by faith. And so he uses that phrase, which appears to be very well known, but he recognizes there's a way of abusing that phrase as well. We see it in Southern Baptist life. Uh, There are many, many people who profess faith, but there's nothing transformative about their lives. That's what makes this passage perhaps as important a passage in the Bible for many Southern Baptists. Now, I want you to notice something about this faith. Now, if you look all the way back in chapter 1, he speaks about a faith that produces steadfastness. Now, their faith is, is seen in a positive light. Faith produces steadfastness, and in particular, the testing of our faith. So when you have saving faith and your faith gets tested, your faith will produce perseverance. It's going to produce steadfastness. It's one of the evidences of our salvation. Whereas someone who has a professed faith but not saving faith, when they're tested, it doesn't produce perseverance it doesn't produce steadfastness it produces someone who's very bitter and someone who withdraws from the people of god and perhaps even draws with and certainly uh, withdraws from god as well so we see that uh, in verse 3 then notice in verse 6 he says Let him ask in faith. Talking about this wisdom that we're to ask for. Let him ask in faith. So their faith is seen as positive as well. One of the evidences that we've been saved is that we have a vertical life. We have a life that the scripture calls prayer. And prayer itself is an act of faith. When we prayed for Job, when we prayed for the other prayer request in here, we were confessing our faith in our God. We're confessing that He is, as I said, the fount of all supply. We are impotent, we are weak, and we are completely dependent upon Him. You see faith also used in a very positive way in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So there, that is the saving faith He's referring to. Again, faith here is, is seen in a positive light. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Now, to be poor in the world is not necessarily to mean to be someone who has uh, poverty. It's someone who recognizes their spiritual poverty. So you can be a very wealthy person, which we all are, by the way, uh, when you compare us to the world's uh, financial standard. And certainly... Even in the history of the world, we're all very wealthy. And yet, even the wealthiest among us can be poor in the sense that James is referring to when we recognize our poverty of spirit and our brokenness and our dependency upon the Lord. He says, those who are rich in faith are heirs of the kingdom. Uh, And then, you see faith used obviously in a negative way in our current passage, but you see one more time it's used positive In chapter five, verse fifteen, where he says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so there we are praying uh, for the sick and praying in faith. So those that's a positive expression of faith. That's not what James is talking about in this passage. Here he is concerned about a faith that does not produce fruit. And so, again, works is what he is going after. Now, when you read in Paul the term works, is that a positive or a negative thing with the Apostle Paul? It's negative. And and how does Paul use the term works? Yeah, how does he use works? Why is it negative for Paul? That's exactly right. He's taking on this legalistic notion that if I will do enough good things, God will be pleased with me. He will approve of me. It's the default religion of the human heart. That's why every religion in the world but Christianity teaches some form of works salvation. I do these things, therefore... God is pleased. God is ex- accepts me. And so Paul uses works in that way. James is not using works in that way. He has a completely different agenda, a completely different audience. We have to know our audience in, in order to understand what he's getting after. And so for, for James, works are faith deeds. Now, why do I say that? Well, n- notice... How he begins the chapter. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so works for James are faith works. Faith deeds. Now someone explain what I mean by that. What do I mean by faith deeds? What does that sound like? There you go. You're not doing it to, to try to curry favor with God. You're doing it because you have favor with God. It's a response. And again, we can't divide or divorce faith from hope and love. It is a it is motivated by faith, hope, and love. It's a response to what He has done for us in saving us. It is an act of love. It's what Paul calls the obedience of faith in Romans one and Romans sixteen. And so oftentimes. Um, when you see this language of works, you have to know who is discussing it. And so faith and works is connected like heat is to fire. I think will be a good illustration here. Now, now that James has made his thesis statement, which is verse um, 14 in chapter 2, He's going to give us four case studies. And the first case study is seen in verses 15 to 17. We see here that false religion is useless with mankind. That's the first case study. False religion is useless with mankind. Look at me in verse 15. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? A good illustration for that is hypothetically, if you're driving down the road and see someone who needs their tire changed. What a story. Y'all be moving your membership after this. (laughs) Those stories, that's right. Mine's probably the most notorious, though. I was on the way to church. Uh, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, that should cause us, that should sober us. Because I'm telling you, I grew up, With this, I'm not even going to mention Fisherville. I'll just tell you about my experience growing up. I have family that haven't been in church 30 years, and if you were to ask certain members of my family, are those people saved? Now, I'm talking about people I love dearly. I'm not judging them. This is this is a person who prays for them every day. If you were to ask, are they saved? Certain people in my family say yes. I remember when they were. Committed to the Lord and did all these things. James just said, Faith that does not have works is dead. And he gives a case study genuine faith that does not meet the needs of the poor is dead. Charles Spurgeon said, If you want to give a hungry man a track, a gospel track, wrap it up in a sandwich. And so James is clearly going after something that was notorious then as much as it's notorious now. This notion that you can have an intellectual faith and it not have a transforming effect on your life. And let me let me tell you why this is important when we think about our loved ones. It's not so that you can judge them it's so that you know how to pray for them so that you can know how to interact with them. Don't ever assume your loved one is saved because they walked an aisle at a revival 30 years ago. That's exactly what James is saying is dead faith, if there's been no fruit. And so this is as important a passage as we'll ever see. If your faith is alone, James says, you're in the grip of an illusion. Now, in case study two, uh, James anticipates this objection to the message of verses 15 to 17. We saw in verses 15 to 17, false religion is useless with mankind. Here we see false religion is useless with God. Even more importantly, verse 18 But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James is taking that on. It seems to be here that the opponent or the hypothetical opponent argues that faith and work and works are separate. They're separate virtues. They're separate gifts. And just so someone may have the gift of faith, someone may have the gift of works. And, and so the objection that's being raised here is that faith and works can be separated. Some people have the gift of faith. Some people are really gifted in the area of faith. Other people are gifted in the area of works. What do you mean by that? That's exactly right. By separating, by separating them, them, he's saying, look, you, I may not have the faith, but I, or I may not have the works, but I have the faith. That's exactly right. That's exactly what he's taking on. Um, as if, it's almost like uh, you're talking about spiritual gifts here. One guy may have the gift of service, the other guy may have the gift of teaching or leadership. And so James is taking that on. Well, notice in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. A little sarcasm here. Even the demons believe. The point is, James is not impressed with intellectual faith because, and he doesn't say it here, but the Bible tells us, we're all hardwired for God. That's why when you, it's not hard to convince a child that Santa Claus exists. Because they are naturally hardwired for a transcendent being that stands over them. And so you'd be hard-pressed to find real, hardcore, philosophical atheists. They're out there, but Randy, wouldn't you agree that for someone to become an atheist, that person almost has to be given over to get to the point of being a true atheist? Yeah, that's no doubt about that. <laughs> Uh, It it would take a tremendous amount of faith to be an atheist. But the reality is there's very few atheists because God has written His name on our hearts. He's written the law on our hearts. But He's saying belief in God is not sufficient. Virtually everyone has belief in God. Even the demons, He says. Notice in verse 19, He says, uh, Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, if demons can hold such faith and remain in judgment, perdition, if you will, then ought men who believe in God also end up in perdition? I mean, think about the story of the demoniac in Mark 5 when Jesus goes to that island of Gennesaret. By the way, I was there this summer, and they have, for the first, in the last two or three years, have built a road that allows you to go up to that island. And so you're, able, you're right there. For the first time in history, you're able to stand there where this took place. It is glorious. It is a beautiful place. But remember, when he cast those demons out of that man, I think there were at least 2,000 demons. And the reason I say that is because there were 2,000 pigs, Matthew tells us, that those demons were cast into. And here's what the, the demon said. You terrify us. Have you come to destroy us? So even the demons shudder at God, and yet these demons were wicked. And so James is saying that the faith of demons has more effect than on those who make mere professions. That brings us to case number three, case study number three. He's going to provide us, which is essentially two brilliant illustrations here. Now, why do I say they're brilliant? Because he's going to take on or take two opposite examples in Jewish history to make his point. You would never, in other words, connect Abraham with Rahab. But that's exactly what he does to make his point. Case study number three. Truth, faith is useful with God. Look with me in verse 20. He says. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That faith apart from works is useless. Well, notice verse 21. Was not Abraham our father? justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar justified by works now that that kind of gives me the willies when i read that in in 2 weeks we're having a we're having uh, you know all hallows eve all hallows day uh, october 31st the 499th anniversary of reformation. In fact, I'm thinking about preaching a sermon on justification that Sunday. And what is the, what is the, the doctrine of justification that flows out of that or essentially spearheaded the, the reformation? It's justification by faith. Here, James says, Abraham was justified by works. What in the world is he talking about? anybody have the foggiest notion? All right. Take a stab at it. Yes. And it was the obedience of faith, wasn't it? That's right. Well, in Genesis 15, now here he's appealing to Genesis 22, where Abraham offered up his son on the altar, right? And in Genesis 15 is where it says he was justified and his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. But here it's saying he was justified in Genesis 22. That's seven chapters later. You know, several decades later, in fact. So note the order. James is very aware of Genesis 15. What he's saying here is that Abraham, yes, was justified by faith. And yet, in Genesis 22, that that faith is proven to be justifying faith. I, I think about Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, what does that mean? Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is proven right by her actions. That's what it means. Wisdom is proven right by her actions. Just, so Abraham's faith is proven right to be real by the actions. So when we think about justification, here's, I think, the best way to say it. Justification by faith, where our sins are forgiven, we are accepted as righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of Jesus, That is a declarative righteousness. But justification before men is a demonstrative righteousness. We are demonstrative faith. Our faith demonstrates itself by its works. That's what he's arguing for. I hope I haven't confused that. So, Abraham was saved the same way we are. By grace alone through faith alone, right? And yet... In Genesis 22, he is proving that he has truly been saved by this grace through faith. In that, when God calls him to obedience, his his faith shows itself in obedience. That's the point James is making. That's exactly. So, what did he say? Uh, I now I know. Yeah. Now I know that yeah. Of course, that's that's language that it's not that God has learned new information. It's, it's what we call anthropomorphic language. I don't like to use that. That's what it is. Attributing human-like qualities to God for the benefit of the reader. Right? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So that's referring to Genesis 15. Does anyone have that as a cross reference in their Bible verse 23? Genesis 15:6. So he's quoting two different texts, Genesis 15:6 and Genesis 22. Obviously Genesis 22 follows Genesis 15, so he is saying here that scripture was fulfilled that Abraham truly did believe God. How do we know that he believed God? Because when God called him to a radical act of obedience, he obeyed. That's the point. So in that way he was justified by his works in the sense that his his faith was proven right by his works. His works did not save him, it showed that his faith was real. That brings us to the last case study in verses 25 to 26. And that is the case study of Rahab. True faith is useful with mankind. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, the contrast is is very intentional here, as you're going to see. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, in the same way as Abraham, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, someone tell me the irony of using Abraham and Rahab as the examples. Oh, and the other one's the father. He's the constitutional father of Israel. He's like the Thomas Jefferson of Israel. And so you've got the constitutional father and you've got a prostitute. He's using those two examples. Why do you think he's using those two examples? Gentile and Jew, that's another example, another one reason perhaps to speak of the whole world. But he's saying that you have this great man of faith right here, and you have this woman who, who had a sordid past over here, and they're getting in the same way. Okay? No one gets in any other way, and this saving faith is going to show itself. That's what he's going after here. Um, Abraham was respected, Rahab was not. Abraham was a man. Rahab was a woman. In that day, in the culture, not among Christians, but in the culture, women were not reverenced and respected as much as as men. That's why, by the way, Christianity was so important to the cause of women, because Christianity taught, rightly, that women have the same worth and dignity as men. And so James is using these two illustrations to demonstrate the comprehensiveness of this truth. So what was the work of Abraham? He held nothing back, not even his son. What was the work of Rahab? At, at the potential cost of losing her life. That's a, can you imagine the kind of uh, danger she placed herself in? That was an act of faith in their God, in Israel's God. And so, James is, has driven home his point. And this is for those people who say, Pastor, don't bother me, I'm already a Christian. I've walked the aisle, I've prayed the prayer. Uh, I don't have a lot of sinful vices. I tithe. I'm a regular church member. I even teach Sunday school, and I sing in the choir And James is saying that true saving faith goes public. Look with me in verse 26 to close this out. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so the glory of the gospel is not merely that we're justified... When we depend entirely on Jesus alone. But also in that depending on Christ alone is the power that makes us new and makes us loving. And so James is going after that. And that's what makes this passage so crucial. Anybody have any thoughts or insights before we close? Yeah. 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 With, where somebody's bad works proves that they were a believer. And you think Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter yeah. 5, yeah. Uh, God judged them immediately for their bad works. They were believers, but here they had bad works, so that was proof that they were a believer. So if you see somebody in bad works and they're getting along fine and there's no problem, that's that's probably proof that they, <laughs> they're not the Lord's. That, that could very well be. I mean, so what you're saying is that a, a believer is under the discipline of God. Right. And and so it may be that a believer has a harder time succeeding in rebellion than an unbeliever. An unbeliever may succeed a, an entire lifetime in rebellion because that unbeliever is not under the disciplining hand of the Father. For instance, um, if Seth's boys, you know, coming here uh, and let's just say Emily's sitting here and they just slap Emily upside the face, um, that, that that's Seth's deal. I'm not going to go over there and, and spank them because they're not my sons. They're his sons. And when he spanks them, uh, he proves that they are his sons. That's right. And so an unbeliever may, may have an entire lifetime of success and... Um, because they're not under the disciplining hand of God. But there is a day that awaits judgment. Um, but for the believer, God is committed that we, anything we do apart from him, we will either fail miserably or succeed miserably. So, any other thoughts? 19, you know, where he talks about you believe that God is one. Yeah. That's right. the 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 demons' faith was more transformative for them than than a non saving faith. That's right. And I, you know, typically, what I think what you can see here is this this effort to to have this outward, you know, moral life without repentance, without regeneration. Um, that makes some of them. Let me just say this, and I'm not talking about any Matt Fisherville. I'm talking about my childhood church. Some of the meanest people on the planet are moralists in the local church who haven't been born again and who haven't, who aren't, whose morality is not birthed by faith. It's birthed by self-righteousness. And I saw a lot of that growing up. And I left the church when I uh, graduated from high school. And that's one of the reasons. It, I I just I was turned off by that. So, any other thoughts? Oh, that's absolutely. Safe? That was me. Yeah, absolutely. That was me in high school. Um, I'll turn this off. I don't want this recording.